On February 3rd, tennis legend Tony Trabert passed away at the age of 90. The winner of 10 major titles, five in singles and five in doubles, he ascended to the number one ranking among amateur players in 1955. Tony was born and raised in Cincinnati. In 2014, I had the opportunity to interview him. The idea was to create a Q&A piece for the Western and Southern Open Tournament Program, the ATP and WTA event held in his hometown. Tony was 84 at the time, and he graciously invited me into his home office for the interview. It was quickly apparent there was not going to be a lot of back and forth because Tony was eager to tell his story, and I was not about to get in his way. To honor Tony after his passing, I wanted to share this interview as a chance for Tony to tell his story on this special edition of Credentials Only. I should note this recording was made using a simple digital audio recorder on a table between us, so it may not be the audio quality you're used to on your podcasts. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation from 2014 with Tony Traber. Start all the way back with just your youth, and because you were born and raised in Cincinnati. I was. I was born in Christ Hospital in 1930, and um, depression going on. Um, lived in Bond Hill. Uh, lived on a street called Franklin Avenue, which was a dead end. Ran into the Bond Hill playground. Um, I have. I was the youngest of three boys. We didn't have any money. I think I think you would would have described that area as lower middle class. We were in a five room bungalow, you know, stone and fine, and you know we had we had enough to eat and a roof over head and love and so forth. But I remember my dad saying to us. Uh, I'm going to keep you involved in sports so you don't have time to be a drugstore cowboy. You know, sit around in the afternoon and get in trouble. And we had a lot of neighborhood kids. And uh, so I spent all day, every day as a kid growing up in the playground. Four clay courts, uh, a horizontal bar, I don't know why it was there, uh, baseball diamonds, swimming pool. In enough area where you could play touch football or you know whatever, and I guess I, I hit my first tennis ball when I was six. We had some of the better city players played at the, at the playground on, after work some evenings during the week, and I I started a ball boy for them, and then someone would hit a few with me if, if they were someone else was late or they were a little early or something. And I would go over the delicatessen and get him a Coke or, you know, I mean, they give him money, obviously, but I mean, get another can of balls or whatever they needed. And they were very nice to me. And one of the gals gave me, eventually gave me one of her old rackets, which was lighter than what I was trying to play with. I ended up with a kid's racket, shorter and so forth. But uh, anyway, so that's when I first started hitting tennis balls when I was six. But... I was swinging at a baseball and trying to learn to swim, and you know, so it wasn't like I had my mindset on being a tennis player. Uh, a junior permit there was 50 cents for the year, but a senior could run you off. 
so it was a senior permit was a dollar so my dad bought me a senior permit so they he couldn't run you off you know and I helped I helped them uh, care for the courts helped drag them and line them and I got a picture somewhere of me lying in the court and it looks like a I was drunk, you know, the line just weaving, <laughs> going down the side. And, uh, but anyway, so I spent a lot of time there. Played my first local tournament when I was 10. And uh, I don't know how much detail you want. I can go faster, whatever. No, I'm happy to. Okay. Uh, I played, a, I think it was at Eden Park. And... In those days, it was boys and juniors. It wasn't 10s, 12s, 14s. It was 15 and under, 18 and under. And I was 10, I, and I drew a fellow named Don White, who was number one seed. He was 15, I was 10. Uh, the most memorable part of that whole thing was that I had a note to get out of school about an hour early so I could get there for my match. So that was a pretty good deal, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I got there, and his dad was there. And my dad was there. My dad had picked me up to you know, get me there. And uh, they sat on a bench outside the fence and went into the court. And he had me six love, three love. And I, I changed, we changed court from, I was at the end where the parents were, and I came to the other end, and I, when I looked back, Don Wise's dad was had his hands through the chaining fence talking to his son. And... Uh, my game miraculously, miraculously picked up, and I won the next game. He beat me six love six one. And driving home, my dad said, "What do you think?" And I said, oh, "It was fun. I mean, obviously, it was way too good for me, but it was fun, good experience, and and you know, I got a game from him." Well, about two years later, I realized that Dad said to him, "This is this little guy's first tournament. He's no threat." give him a game you know so he let me win one game which I thought I'd won you know mm -hmm. and uh, and I always remember that throughout my career if I was playing somebody that I know was no threat at all I tried to do the same thing um, anyway so I played local tournaments and then you play you know re district tournaments regional tournaments many times you play in high school <clears throat> excuse me I played basketball on the Walnut Hills High School team and played on their tennis team, played on their volleyball team. Um, and the reason I played basketball is that we had no indoor courts. And you know, in the wintertime, there's no place to play. We had a, we had a, I don't know if you know Walnut Hills High School at all, but they have a big stone wall on one side that used to, used to I hit balls against that thing all the time. And, um, had a couple of friends that would play some in the wintertime if the weather wasn't too bad and we had, had a net and we'd go to the public park and slide the net through this, you know, and climb over the fence and go play. And we weren't breaking any rules or just they were closed for the winter, we weren't hurting anything. Every once in a while we get in the high school, one of those high school gym on a Saturday, took chalk and drew a court and <laughs> hung a net on, on the two volleyball standards like a sway back horse, you know. And I remember he had fold-up stands on the right side if you're one end of the court, and of course on the left side, the other down the other end. And so you weren't allowed to serve wide in that that side because you'd run a guy to wall, you couldn't get it, you know, so. But we, we got to hit some balls, lightning fashion on varnished wood and so forth. But it was better than nothing. And uh, 
I was I didn't lose a, a singles match in high school and then I went to UC and I only played one one full year I, I was there uh, well first of all I started on a freshman basketball team there in 1948 and I had not won a national championship I was favored at Kalamazoo a couple of times but didn't didn't win that's when my dad got prematurely gray you know <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they had a, an indoor tournament in St. Louis national indoors so I dropped off the basketball team freshman team went out to play that and won the singles and doubles it was not the same field that you had at Kalamazoo there weren't as many good players but they were national titles nonetheless <clears throat> and then uh, in 1950 uh, I was 19 at the time Bill Talbert who was from Cincinnati my idol who was 12 years older than I so I was 19 he was 31 uh, called me from New York and he said uh, Nancy his wife Nancy and I are going to Europe for the first time and uh, wanted to take you along we could play doubles together be a good experience for you and he knew we didn't have any money and um, so he said you have to get permission from the president of the university Raymond Walters and, and your parents you got to promise to go back to school and I did that and they were all all for it but the president of the university said well, my new person good guy he said he said you'll learn so much more over there in three months you win books it's, it's not even funny he said I'll give you a list of some things to go see but don't worry they're not going to be history books or, you know I mean history things would be some fun things so uh, now he asked Bill Talbert asked the United States Lawn Tennis Association in those days um, if they'd help defray my expenses they said no it'll never be any good so that's all right. that's their opinion so Talbert said well I'll figure it out and you, you get you get some expense money from the various tournaments you're playing and and just to make the math easy let's, let's say that your plane ticket was $1,200 you had you played in six tournaments each tournament give you 200 bucks for your plane ticket you know that kind of mm -hmm. thing and um, so uh, I, to this day I don't know if it cost him any money but when I made some money as a pro and I, I offered to pay him back <clears throat> and he said he said uh, just do something nice for another player which I've always done he always did he did so much for other players you know we slept in his apartment in New York and they did our laundry and took us out to dinner and took us to J press and got us a sport coat and a slack you know things that we couldn't couldn't have gotten done uh, anyway <clears throat> he and I won every turn we played in, in in Europe that year and unfortunately we didn't play at Wimbledon together because he and Gardner Malloy had won the national championships here four times and because Bill had never gone to Europe they'd never played Wimbledon so he thought he owed it to Malloy to play Wimbledon they lost early in the second or third round I played with Buddy Patty we lost in the semis uh, as a sequence of events that, that turned out to work against us why we had a good chance to win if Bill and I if Talbot had played we'd have won it for sure and that's one of the two major championships I didn't win is Wimbledon doubles and you know, Australian singles so it's sort of it's always in my in my head a little bit you know <laughs> uh, but anyways fantastic experience 
won the French doubles, won the Italian, you know, all over the joint. And uh, and and then ate at nice places. And he taught me so many, so much more than just hitting tennis balls, social things, and you know, write a thank you note and those things. It's, it's, it's kept me in great stead over the years. You know, I, he, we'd go someplace for dinner, and there's more silver in front of me than we had in our whole house. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so what do you what do you use first? He says, watch the hostess, and you know, work the outside in, all that kind of stuff. Um, Anyway, uh, so, and then I came back to UC, and I played, I went out for the varsity team, basketball team, and uh, I played the 50-51 season. Uh, I didn't start the first three or four games, and one of our forwards got hurt, and so I, then I started from then on. We played in the NIT that year, which was which was bigger than the NCAA's. You know, in those days, lost in double overtime to St. Bonaventure, I think it was. Um, then I got drafted. I was in good standing in school. And I was in the Naval Reserve, and I, they were supposed to touch me, you know. But I was up in Brookline, Massachusetts, going to play the national doubles championships in August of, of 1950. One, uh, and my dad called and said, "You're going to be drafted." And uh, some parents wrote some poison penlers and my kids in Korea. How can he be over there playing tennis, out there playing tennis? So I got back to my commander, commanding officer in the Naval Reserve. And if I had to go in the army four years, if I went into the Naval Reserve, it would be two years. And the commander got me into quota. So I went in to boot camp in September of 51, went to Bainbridge, Maryland, went through boot camp. And guys, I got to know there, said, oh, you'll be stationed with some admiral here playing tennis with them every, you know, every day. Well, I, they shipped me right from Bainbridge, Maryland to Norfolk, Virginia, and put me on an aircraft carrier called the Coral Sea the largest type aircraft carrier in those days. Longer than three football fields end to end, you know. And you had like 3,500 people on board, 110 aircraft, and all the stuff you need to run a city for a couple of weeks before you could get to the next port. And the next day I'm hanging out over on scaffolding with two other sailors, shipping paint off the side of this aircraft carrier looking 80 feet down in this murky water and I'm thinking this is bad you know <laughs> this, is, this is not good <laughs> and, and my in my quarters on the board ship they had bunk beds three high you know and I mean your your face is six eight ten inches from the guys you know sunken mattress from above you I was in the bottom on the one side and the guy was the same bottom across from me and he was looking up at the top bunk over me and like a dog waiting for a bone, you know, all of a sudden he hears slap and I look over it's a comic book and he jumped on that book like he like a dog would have to eat for a week, you know. And I thought there's gotta be something better to do and deal with better you know, different people than that. And it wasn't you know, racist or anything, it was just it just I thought I could do something that'd be more fun and more mm -hmm. demanding. So I got a call shortly thereafter from a guy who said, either tennis player, I said, yeah, and he said, how would you like to be a quartermaster? And I said, anything what I'm doing now. So I became a quartermaster, which was basically navigation. So that was fun and interesting to work on the bridge and 
I was captain's talker when when we had um, an air defense, you know, and so uh, you know they put me on the helm one time. I scared him to death, and uh, so we went on a six-month cruise in the Mediterranean. I was spent 16 months on the carrier, and hit a ball or two when I when we got to Oran, Algeria, or someplace. I did get off the ship for three or four days ago playing the French one year, which you know, I hadn't been playing. I won a round or two and then got beat. But basically didn't play any tennis during that 16 month period. <clears throat> My last three months I was in Coronado in North Island with San Diego. And I did get to play some tennis starting there. And I got out in June of 53. And I set my sights. Um, to try to win four shields, which was played in late August, early September, on grass in those days, and uh, I, I had to train, lose a little weight, and, and, and you know, get try to get in better shape, and still play some tournaments. I was willing to sacrifice a chance to win the tournaments um, to try to win the four shields. I, I won several tournaments en route, and and. Uh, one, one that fourth shows didn't lose a set, beat Vexatious in the finals in straight sets, and he was Wimbledon champion at the time. Uh, so that was my first major singles, Grand Slam singles title. And uh, I played on 51, two, two, five Davis Cup teams. We only won it once. Australia held it. And took it back from us. And Bill was the captain of that team. Bill was the captain. We were in 1953, because you know the, the, the seasons are reversed, so December is the middle of their summer. And you played, in those days you played a challenge round, and the holding nation waited until everybody wheedled down and you had one team left, and you played them holding nation in their country, on their surface. And uh, 53 played Kuyong at Melbourne. And uh, we had, we were had. I, I beat Rose on the first day, and Sasha's beat, beat. Uh, we lost to Hode, uh, and Vic and I won the doubles. And I played Hode the first match, the third day. And if we win, we you know we regain the cup. And uh, it's a drizzly sort of a day, and he won the first two sets. I won the next two, and he beat me seven five in the fifth. Mm. And the court was such that. They, they felt they couldn't play the other match till the next day, and then Roosevelt beat Satius, which he did nine or ten times, <laughs> excuse me, nine or ten times in a row. And, uh, and so they beat us 3 2. And afterwards, they had the official ceremony and so forth, and one of the government officials said, Yesterday was Lou Ho's day, and today was Ken Roosevelt's day. And when it Came my turn to speak. I said, I said, maybe yesterday was Hose Day and today is Roosevelt Day, but next year I'm going to have my day. I guarantee you my day. Well, Frank says when one of my buddy and competitor called it my MacArthur speech, you know, I shall return kind of thing. <laughs> but we did, Vic and, and Talbot and I did dedicate the next year to trying to win the cup because we were so close. Mm -hmm. And um, we played to Sydney. They had, uh, they had built temporary stands around a few, maybe 5,000 regular seats, permanent seats. They had 25,500 a day, and they, they claimed they could have had 50 if they could have built it. And uh, 
I played Hoed the first day and beat him in four sets. And Vic beat Roseoff the first time. And then we won the doubles, so we, we won the first three that in fifty four. And that was that was by far the highlight of my tennis career personally. You know, when you're playing for your country, they say United States serving instead of Trabert serving and and I yes, I had played you know, Wimbledon and the French and those other major tournaments and I'm not poo-pooing any of that, but but just just the opportunity to represent the nation is a a privilege I've always felt, whether it's in the service or as a sportsman or whatever, you know. And uh, and then in '55, I had a, a a special year. I lost in the semis to Australian, which was two weeks after the Davis Cup. The semis to Rose Wall. Then I won the French Wimbledon in the U.S. Both times I went at Forest Chills, and, and when I went at Wimbledon, I didn't lose a set. So I got able to get at a pretty good level and stay there. And um, I think I played in 22 tournaments that year and won 18 of them and won 17 doubles. So it was a good year. Then I turned pro, mm -hmm. played on Kramer's tour. And I did that through 1963. From 60 to 63, we lived in Paris. I lived in Paris with my family. And I was helping, I was playing a little bit, but not much then, but I was helping to run tennis in, in Europe and and uh, Asia and Africa. Uh, and then I came, came back to the States in October of 63 and started working for a friend of mine in the hosiery business. And then 1970, I left that and started my own corporation, ran a summer camp. Started doing television for CBS in '71, and that was fun. I did 30, 30 years of the U.S. Open for CBS, and I did 23 years for an Australian Network. Which you know, so those those were fun experiences, and mostly major tournaments. Some, but some were were other, particularly for Australian Network, they did other things, other tournaments. Um, of course, I missed open tennis, though Dick Savitt and I played the doubles of the first U.S. Open at Forest Hills just to say we'd played an open, you know. <laughs> I was, uh, when I was 38 and he was about 40, I guess, when we played. But we, we can say we played an open, you know. For sure. Uh, well, that's, I don't know, you know, whether, whether Questions you might have, be happy to answer whatever you want. And I, you know, I'm reluctant to say I win this. I went so I can brag, but it's just fact. Yeah, no, it's. it's I, mean, I played in the NCAA's one year and won it. Uh, lost in doubles final, which was a feat in my view because my partner was a fellow named Bud Igel, I G E L. <coughs> Shooting is from Cross River in Kentucky. Good guy. We beat we beat two seeded teams from from uh, California uh, en route to the finals, and Bud played well, held up well. He was certainly you know a weaker link, uh, but did a good job. We finally lost to Hugh Stewart and Earl Koshel in the finals. I think it was four sets. I had beaten Koshel in the finals of the singles. I don't think I lost a set in the intercollegiates either. Uh, Going back when they were high school three times in a row, mm -hmm. they wouldn't let me play my freshman year because they had a senior there. They think he deserved to play, though I had beat him all the time 
I, I, I think I don't want it pretty handily if, if wartime. Excuse me, which no one's done apparently, but but um, when you were a kid, do, do you remember attending? Then it was called the Tri-State Tournament. Yeah, and I know you worked out at the Cincinnati Tennis Club. Right, that's where the tournament was. Did did you attend the tournament? Were the players you obviously Bill Talbert, but were there other players you remember? Yeah, I, yeah, I did, I did, and um, when I was twelve. Um, I was down on a, three or four courts away from from the clubhouse, and Bill Talbert came in and tried to say he was going to play it, you know, play his match. And he saw me down there, I'm a little guy with a sun visor on, swinging at volleys, you know. So mechanically not very sound. And he asked somebody who I was, and he told them, he said, Do you think he'd mind if I gave him a hint, you know, talk, try to help him a bit? Well, he said he'd love it, so he came down, and you know I was thrilled to death. And he showed me how to punch the volley instead of swing at it. So he went, he played his match, showered, changed, and he's leaving. Looks down, I'm still out there punching volleys. He said, "I, I got to help that kid," you know. So he took me under his wing, and uh, you know, Easter time, a couple of times, I'd take a train to New York and stay with him, and you know, it wouldn't cost me anything except train fare and. And uh, those kind of experiences, you you know. So the Cincinnati Tennis Club was a was huge. I took lessons from a pro named Earl Besson uh, at Camargo Country Club, and then when I got to the Cincinnati Tennis Club, I took lessons from Howard Zay, and so two local pros who taught me good sound fundamentals, and um, I just. Practice, you know, a lot, and there was no shortcut. I, and in retrospect, I don't think I sacrificed anything. Your kids say I sacrificed so much to to be a player. I didn't think I sacrificed anything because I do what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I enjoyed it, and I didn't want to go steady with some girl. So she said, "What about the dance?" When I wanted to go to Detroit to play a weekend tournament, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And uh, so. That was the that was the gist of it. My dad, in the summertime, once I belonged to Cincinnati Tennis Club, he he worked for General Electric downtown, so he went Victory Parkway and just bopped up to Walnut Hills High School and dropped us off. And he'd come back, pick me up his basketball. We we played tennis at, at the Triangle Course at William Howard Taft and Reading Road, a public park there. That's where our, those were our home courts. Okay, and. Um, so if we were playing there, he'd, he'd come through there and wait till we were finished and, you know, pick me up. And if we had a couple of teammates that lived en route, we could drop them off. You know, the typical Midwestern good stuff going on kind of thing. Um, I don't want to digress, but I want to remember to say this because I mentioned earlier, we, there, there were quite a few kids in the neighborhood. And... I didn't realize at the time, but my dad would get us out in the evenings. Again, we were on a dead end street, and he'd organize kick the can, hide and seek, poison tag, you know, uh, run run races for pennies, kind of thing, handicap the kids, and all that kind of stuff. And when it started to get dark, we'd all go over to the delicatessen. We made sure we all had a penny or two, and 
and we get a jawbreaker or something for a penny and, and go home. And we had expended energy, stayed out of trouble, mm-hmm. and, you know, and that's really what what he was doing. He was, my dad was, parents died a month apart when he was seven. He was born by the name of Wilson out in Nevada. And he ended up in an orphanage. And he was adopted by Bill Traber and his wife when he was 10. Didn't think she could get pregnant, and she did after they were adopted him and they mistreated him enough that he ran away from home when he was 11. Lived in a cardboard box behind a restaurant, did, did, did dishes for meals. And when he was 14, he shoveled 25 tons of rock in his little cable cars before he came out of mines at age 14. And he worked his way through high school and, and University of Nevada. Was a five-letter man in college, but his own admission, just good enough to get a letter. He didn't excel in anything. But that's where he got that bug for sports, you know. And, uh, and of course, he was adamant about us getting an education. When I got back from the service, I went back to UC in 1954. Played the last eight games of the basketball season. Jack Twine was on that team. But I recognized that nobody didn't know anybody, many people there anymore because they're all gone. Uh, but also, while I was on this aircraft carrier, Hoden Rose, all these people I was going to play against, we were playing tennis. And I thought I should drop out of school and and go play. But my my dad had always been adamant about getting a college education. So I got both my brothers to go with me, went downtown, met my dad for lunch, and blurted out what I had in mind, you know. <laughs> and uh, he said uh, I couldn't agree more. So he recognized where I was in the game and what, you know, he knew the whole thing inside out and backwards. So I dropped out of, out of UC and started playing full time. I was blessed to just a couple of years ago to get a, a doctorate at UC, mm-hmm. uh, which is very special for me. Did it, Oscar Robertson got one at the same time. Uh, that's those things. Just wanted to get in so you have them on record. Yeah, no, it's great. I uh, I did want to ask you about a few specific things. 1951, you've won the tri-state. And you had to beat Bill to do it. I mean, it had to be a that was my first win. tournament. That was my first win over him. I got a great picture of the two of us in the den shaking hands. He, he's looking at me with the nicest smile and and, and, and admiration and affection. Hey, kid, nice going. You finally did it, you know. And I had a hard time playing him up to that time because because he was my best friend and my idol and did so much for me. And it was hard to have that killer instinct, you know, mm-hmm. plus up until a certain point he, he, he played it better than I did, so that makes it harder to win too, you know, so. You, you talked a little bit about the 1955 season, right? which was incredible, and there are a few things I want to ask you about that, but how much do you think that Davis Cup win helped you when you had that success in 55 because we saw that a little bit with Djokovic recently where it was really Davis Cup that propelled him to that individual success do you think your Davis Cup in 53-54 helped you with well it certainly helped uh, no question about that when, when but you know you, you, your, your goals are win majors mm-hmm. 
So you win, you win Wimbledon, you win the French. I won the French singles twice and doubles three times. Um, I played in 11 Grand Slam finals and won 10 of them. So, you know, I was able to close it out when you got there kind of thing. Uh, but, and, and I don't want this to sound like an excuse, but I think it's fact. When a golfer wins the Masters and he's entered in Greensboro the next week, he doesn't play too well at Greensboro. Mm -hmm. You know, he's let down and so forth. Well, when we went to Australia, first of all, from the East Coast of the United States, it took us 50 flying hours to get there. Five, ten-hour legs and prop planes, you know. And, of course, we went there way, way early. We're there two, two and a half months. And we played in some of the local tournaments. But, but we were there for one reason, try to win the, the, regain the Davis Cup. So we, we finally did it in December, between Christmas and New Year's, December of 54. And the middle of January, two weeks later, we were playing the Australian Nationals in, in Adelaide. We wanted to go home. Mm -hmm. But the Australian Federation, the US LTA, had an agreement that our, we, our players would stay down there for their Nationals and they would stay for our Nationals. You know. So now, so then I won, you know, lost to Roswell in the semis and then won the next three. Then we played the challenge round the weekend before Forest Hills in 55 at Forest Hills. Um, and they beat us to regain the Davis Cup. And then I won the tournament, and I beat Hoden in the semis, and Rosewell in the finals. And I don't think there's any question in my mind that they were both somewhat flat, for the same reason I'm saying, they mm -hmm. just got the cup back. And they would like to be home by then too. Mm -hmm. um, it's just hard to get, you know, to, to get geared up right away again, so. The other things you have some time in between them, uh, but anyway, I, I, there's no question that, that you know it was a, a big thrill and, a, and a, a big stepping stone in my career. Fifty-five, you reached the Cincinnati final again. Yeah, and it was one of the seven matches you lost. I mean, you played 113 singles matches that year, and you only lost seven. And that was one, but you didn't lose it right away. Do you remember the rain delay and having to come back yeah. after the Open? Uh, uh, was it after the Open or after Wimbledon? I, think I saw September, but I couldn't. Well, you, you can check that yeah. date-wise, but, but uh, I, playing, I was got the finals. I'm going to play Ted Bartson, mm -hmm. good clay quarter from San Angelo, Texas, lefty. And... The finals got rained out. It's my hometown, my home club. And they asked me if I could, would come back and play another. I said, of course I will, you know. So I, I think I came back right after Wimbledon. Okay. Uh, you know, but I, I came back off a of grass tournament and played the finals and lost in a close three-setter. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I, I remember, I mean, Barson was a hard guy to play on clay under any circumstance. In 54, later in 54, 55, I, I handled him pretty well on several occasions, but, but uh, I, I do, do remember the circumstance. You had another thing that happened to you in 1955 that, you know, as a growing up just a big sports fan, I think is really cool. You were on the cover. Yeah. Of a magazine, Sports Illustrated. Yeah, yeah. They took my picture over at Rolling Gros, the French, 
and and I've got it hanging up in my den. Uh, the the magazine's a quarter, twenty five cents, <laughs> and and you know now that the, the players get new balls to practice with when they go and so forth. Well, I the balls in my hand in that photograph are gray. You know, used balls. That's what we had to practice with in those days. Things obviously have changed in a lot of ways, but. Um, they, uh, you know, obviously is a, a big thrill to be on, on that magazine. I was on the cover of Town and Country. I was going to be on the time, a cover of Time magazine, and they had an artist that, that would, would draw the, the cover, and he, he, he drew one with me, which I also have hanging in there, with a rocket up the side, like he's going off like a rocket kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, but some, some major event happened. You know the missile crisis or something, so they bump you off the. You know, and two or three years ago, they contacted me and said, "We we found this thing. Are you interested in having it?" I said, "Absolutely." So they, a friend of mine, got it and shipped it down to me. Just so it was, it was never on the cover, but it was meant to be the cover. Wow. But uh, you know, it's a. It's obviously so. That was 1955, a long time ago. But still pretty cool. I mean, yeah. and obviously great memories. Are yeah, still hanging on your wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your um, your Davis Cup experience wasn't limited to playing. You you were a captain as well. And I want to ask about that experience, but also curious to know: Did playing a team sport like basketball at UC and having been in the military, how much did that help you in being a captain of an individual sport? But cobbling together a team for it well I, I think playing on team sports is important in that you're, you've got to be coachable to be any good um, when the basketball coach says you pass it to him and go block him you don't say why or I don't want to do that you know if you do you end up sitting on the bench so you, you do it because you're told to do it in the military they give you an order and you do it you know that's all, that's all there's to it and and that that doesn't hurt you when you when you get to to running a group of kids or guys you know and um, so I think it definitely definitely helped me uh, having played Davis Cup I I understand the nuances the most challenging was was what players to pick for what surface you know where you're gonna play and uh, and who you play when you once you get down there who's playing better and all that kind of stuff but um, yeah, I was captain from 76 to 80 uh, we won it twice, and it was fun to do that. But it was not the same thrill as when we won it. When I won as a player, John McEnroe played his first Davis Cup match ever when I was captain. He played doubles down in in Chile, mm-hmm. and won that match. And then he played in the challenge, well, the finals was not a challenge on him, but the finals against Great Britain in Palm Springs and Mission Hills, and. Uh, Everybody was saying, the British were saying, oh, he'll find out how nervous you get in a, you know, Davis Cup final since he, he played great. And when people ask me about John, I tell them, honestly, in all sincerity, that he, he was the most coachable player I had of all the players. The only thing I couldn't get him to do is behave on the court. And I talked to him like a Dutch uncle about that for, you know, the whole time. But I could get him to come to the team meetings, to stand up for the national anthem, and come to the team dinner, and you know, and so forth. And when we worked out a strategy for a given match, he would 
he would use it to a T until we decide it was time to change for if they change we adjust kind of thing. So, um, and, and he was obviously very gifted. You don't ask a guy to do something he's not capable of doing. Uh, conversely, Connors was not coachable at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think most players realize how important Davis Cup, you know, is. And, and like I say, representing your nation is, is uh, nothing to be poo-pooed. And, and you know, you we played in some hostile areas, uh, but but that's all that's all part of it, you know, mm-hmm. how you handle it, kind of thing. But that was a, that was a, that was a terrific experience too, being the captain for for five years, and. Uh, I elected to step down and they put Arthur Ashe in there. The, your, your time with the Davis Cup team kind of coincides with when the Cincinnati tournament really took a big step forward and and that has a lot to do with Paul Flory. How well did you know Paul and, and how, were, how involved were you with the tournament as he was starting to get into it and really grow it as a volunteer leader? I was not I was never directly involved in a tournament. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was never asked to be involved in a tournament. Uh, I was honored there one year as the ATP, and I got to gave me a nice money clip. Uh, I'm on the scroll out there somewhere outside the center, the center court. Uh, I, I have been to the tournament probably half a dozen times. Um, I, I I didn't know Paul intimately. I knew him fairly well. Admired him as a human being and the job he did with the tournament. We talked a lot about it, and I remember him telling me that when he first started, uh, I think they were, the players were coming from the tournament up North Conway up in New England somewhere, and and he got a company private jet to fly up there and pick the players up and fly them down there and uh, instead of having to change three times and you know mm-hmm. <laughs> from where they're coming and uh and so he recognized how important it was to, to treat the players well and um and of course he was just just a bright guy and everybody loved him and uh he took care of the players or wives and kids were there and just a phenomenal human being and I did a they, they had a surprise birthday party for him I think they were out in California and they asked me to, to do a little video which they changed to an audio but I remember saying that Paul did it for 21 years or something like that and and you know what he got paid the same amount every year for all those years zero mm-hmm. you know which is which is terrific and you know it was one of the, it's one of the biggest tournaments it's just one little step below the, the the grand slam tournaments you can certainly put it uh, in the same breath with the key biscayne and and indian wells and and the the factory out there now is fantastic. All the stadiums and the stuff they've done, and um, just did a did a 
a marvelous job. I'm very proud of him. You know, I I left Cincinnati when I, when I went in the service, never really came back and lived there. But I always I always felt very strongly about Cincinnati as home and my home. I'm still a diehard Reds fan. I'm not necessarily a big Bengals fan because they didn't exist when I lived there. But I think Cincinnati has done a, a fine job, and uh, I took my wife up there to visit people and she said boy these people are nice you know just good solid midwestern people and uh just they just did a, a ter- terrific job they've done a good job downtown and uh having this their stadiums down there really obviously helps the whole situation i remember going to a crosley field when you're scared to walk your car afterwards you know and i'm not sure the wheels would be on it that was all changed and I notice you've got the UC red and black on. Yeah. Just because, you know, I'm a Xavier guy, you had to do that, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I should we should get that on record. <clears throat> In the 50-51 season, we played Xavier twice, and we won both of them. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. <laughs> um, one of our guards, Bobby Frith, uh, we were going to have a 50th anniversary uh, at the UC, and, and he had, he had a... Uh, what do you call it? Engraved photo of the team. Mm-hmm. But the bombing had a note that we beat Xavier twice that year. You know, <laughs> uh, you know as he should. <laughs> um, it, you've talked a lot about different players from different eras: Arthur Ashe, McEnroe. Um, obviously, you've seen Rod Laver. I mean, you've seen so many different players, and then even Pete, Andre, and now Roger. I realize it's a really hard question to answer, but would you say there are five who really stand out, or six, or is there a top top tier of players? I, I don't know that you could limit it to five. Um, I'm a firm believer that that if you if you took a top player from another era and brought them forward and give them a level playing field, same age, you know, and mm-hmm. fitness and the same equipment, they would do nicely. Jack Kramer was a heck of a tennis player. Um, and and Lou Hode, very gifted. And and uh, I think if they played with the rackets they have now and the and the, the, the strings they have and so forth, they would they would do it very nicely. The stroke production would be a little different because you know obviously to impart topspin you've got to come low to high uh, with your racket tilted and and to scrape the back of the ball kind of thing and with the small racket head we had the wooden racket you didn't have much of a hitting surface you caught an edge right away so you you almost had to come in behind the ball and hit it pretty flat though going low to high you do create some topspin now these guys can hit this heavy western type shots hit it you know as hard as you can hit it and the combination of the, the frame and the strings uh will spin that ball and you know you can keep it in play um it's, it's old dempsey lewis argument uh i'm, I'm always, always been a big kramer fan uh, i you know, I, I think Roger you, would certainly be up there. I think Pete Sampras would be up there. Um, 
Pittsburgh. I got him putting a dial in there. Um, there's a guy I'm afraid his career is going to be shortened because of injury, body damage, just because the way he plays. He's such an animal out there, which is not, I don't mean that to be derogatory at all, but it's hard on his knees and and uh, he might end up not being able to last as long as some others. Um, it's it's been it's been fun to to watch them. And of course, you're doing the television, you analyze more and and sit there and watch them and study them. And uh, the one thing I do want to be on record is saying is you hear an announcer say today that today's tennis player is bigger, stronger, and a better athlete. And in tennis, that is not true. Pete Sampras, six feet, six one, 175. Rogers, six feet, 175. Agassiz, five ten or whatever, 175. Uh, I think uh, Nadal weighs 190. Um, you've got some guys that are six three. We had some guys that were six three. Gonzalez, people like that played. Um, you've had three tall guys, six five, win a, a major. That I can think of, uh, uh, you got you got Stan Smith and uh, Richard Krajicek and uh, Del Potro. Mm -hmm. um, now you got guys six ten out there, but they're not winning tournaments. So what's the difference? Who cares? Okay. Uh, and I don't think they're better athletes. I mean, do hold you you could go down. I was a good athlete. A lot of you know, a lot of good athletes, uh, and they weren't fitter. You know, we we played five sets, and we played a lot more five set matches in various tournaments than they do now. Right. What is going on here now is that there's a lot more depth. I mean, when I played, when I was in my prime, if you didn't go to sleep, you couldn't lose before the quarters. You know, now you better be ready Monday morning when you wake up because there's that much more depth, and that makes it harder to to win tournaments, and obviously, and it makes it harder to win a lot of tournaments in a row because of the, the fatigue factor. I do, I've always felt that a player should know his own body and his own mind and emotion and so forth, know how many tournaments he can play before he should take a week or two off. And it, 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 I sort of laugh, it makes me angry when you read a, a player say, well, I was tired when I got to the U.S. Open. Well, then I said, then you're a dummy. You know, you should be able to plan and accordingly, mm -hmm. and uh, so that that's always obviously part of, of being good and you know being successful. How you plan all those things. These guys don't have the decision making like like you had, um, and Jack Kramer was a big part of that in in 1955 when you decided to stop being an amateur and to go pro. Right. And, before open tennis, it was such a different thing, and, and I think you've you've spoken in other interviews about Rod Laver's career would have been totally different if he didn't have that. You know, I signed Rod to a pro contract. Uh, I went to Gestad when I was living in Paris, signed a pro contract in '63, and from '62 to '68 he couldn't play in a Grand Slam, a major. Uh, with the rules in those days, I, I from '55 on I couldn't play in any of them. And um, he's won 11 Grand Slam singles. Uh, when they first opened at Wimbledon in '68, he won it. Then '69, he won the Grand Slam again as a pro. 
as he had done as an amateur in 62. Uh, no one's ever done that. So, so uh, obviously different. I, was, I mean, I, I had to make a living. Married and had kids. And, and uh, when I went to Wimbledon in 1955, being an amateur, I got a 10-pound certificate, redeemable Lily White Sporting Goods store, $28. Now they get $2 million eight, mm-hmm. you know. All we were trying to do as, as pros in those days was trying to get open tennis, because we knew that would be good for the sport. None of us believed, I don't think, that we have gotten this big, uh, the amount of money involved and everything else. The amateur officials didn't want to give it up because they would give up their limousines and their fancy dinners and you know their parties. Um, so if they had the good players. When Sedgwin agreed to turn pro with Kramer, uh, I think it was 52. Uh, when he got back to Australia, they talked him out of it and they and they started quote unquote a wedding fund for him and raised like 14,000 Australian pounds to give give him and his wife to convince him to stay amateur another year. The year I turned pro, signed in, in 55, uh, Houghton Rosal also signed with Kramer. He had their signatures contracts in the safe. And when they got to Australia, they got talked out of it. And, um, uh, but we, we just, everybody said, well, were the amateurs better or the pros better? We said, well, why don't we put them together and find out? Did that make sense? You know. And anyway, the open tennis has been has been terrific, and and uh, it, it. I must say that I I commend the the top three or four guys who in this past year went to the majors and said we think we deserve the players deserve a better cut of the of the the take. But not so much for us at top. I give the first or second round losers a lecture because they need it to, you know, to survive. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty thoughtful. And and I just heard somebody say not long ago that if you lose in the first round in all four Grand Slam tournaments, you make 120,000 bucks. Mm-hmm. Well, that should you, should you know that should help help you a lot. Um, when I played like the French, if you if you won your match that day, you went down to Portal 13 and you got cash uh, for for the next day's meals. Mm-hmm. You know, you're per diem for the next day, <laughs> and and if you lost, the doors locked, you know, don't show up, kind of thing. And uh, so, you know, obviously it's come a long way, and and a lot of people have done a lot of work to to, to get it this far. There's an interesting trend right now with some of these current players tapping into the minds of the past generation. Wendell had been with Murray, Connors had been with Roddick, right. Becker and Djokovic, Edberg, Federer. Uh, from your unique perspective, having played and been around the game so much, what do you think of that coaching trend? I, I, I go back to when, when I was playing, for example. I didn't really have a coach. Um... I mean, Bill Tower's a friend. If he was a tournament, we may talk about it. You know, I try to know as much as I could about the player I was going to play, and and come up with sort of a game plan, which is not, you know, atomic secrets. It's not that tough. You figure out where a weakness is and try to pound it if you can. And um, and I you know, always felt you have a 
plan B or something to fall back on and and um, then you go play we got our own our own airplane reservations we got from the airport to the hotel uh, we got our own practice court and so forth I think that makes you stronger and and although I think that as Captain Davis Cup team I helped get some of our players through matches some tight spots and so forth but part of the reason besides understanding the game pretty well is that I'm sitting there and watch the other guy not my guy play you know and see what he's doing which when you're playing you can't do that because you've got a ball that's coming at you kind of thing so it's, it's harder to uh, sometimes figure out what the heck's going on but uh, I think you know somebody might be able to help you mechanically a little bit um Psychologically, you can help somebody. You know, I knew John was touchy, McEnroe's touchy in ways. So I said to him, "When you when your serve goes off, what happens?" He says, "I don't throw it high enough, and don't throw it far enough forward." And I and I personally thought that he didn't get the ball to his right a little bit where he could get over it more, just sort of come around the side of it where it's more of a line drive. You don't have the safety over the net. So I said, how about bringing it left a little bit more, to your right a little bit more? He said, yeah, that too. So now when he's playing a match, not serving well, I said, John, don't forget what you told me. What you told me. I'm not telling you. You know, make sure you get the toss up, you know, keep it out in front and pull it to the right a little bit. And, and I, I did that because my dad would take me to lessons when I was a kid. And you had to sit there three hours and listen because he had to drive me home. And and then I'd be out practicing on a Saturday and he'd be standing there sitting on a bench and say, you know, remember what Howard said, you know, get get your racket ready, you know, get the racket head down, you know, whatever. Not come from my dad, but come from the pro. Right. So I think psychologically that, that works. And uh, so I'm sure that, you know, those players could help you to a certain degree. Uh, I'd like to think when you're that far along, you don't. You got it pretty well figured. You know, pretty well figured out. Um, the, the last thing I want to ask you about, you know, we've talked about legends of tennis you've been with, but Pat Summerall. You spent a lot of time in the booth with him. Yeah. And just in general, your experience doing TV. How did you find that as a way to stay involved in the game? Well, I <clears throat> I had a friend of mine to say who was involved with WCT in those days. Um, his name was Mike Davies. He was from, you know, from Wales. And we were talking on the phone. He said, Trey, you ought to be doing television because Mike did a little for their tournament down there in those days. And I thought about it. I said, you know, I don't agree with some of the things that they say on, on the TV. And uh, so I called a, a director at CBS. I was in LA. Identified myself. He was very friendly. And I said I would be interested in coming to talk to you about maybe doing the color. You know, it's a TV. Because I, I, I think if we can be done better, it's being done. He said, like what? And it wasn't antagonistic or anything. Just you know, feeling me out. I said, well, if Stan Smith hits a short approach shot. And Rod Laver passes. That's not a great passing shot. It's a bad approach shot. But they also have a great shot. Great shot. Not a great shot. 
you know, and uh, you know that type of thing. And uh, he said, "Well, the next time you're in New York, you know, give me a call. We'll have lunch." I said, "How about tomorrow?" So I flew to New York the next day, and we met for lunch and had a nice meeting. And he said, "Well, you know, we'll we'll try you." No parameters. You don't tell you anything. You know, you can't be ethnic. You know, can't use bad language. You know, but in general, they just let you go. And and I think that the two things they they they're interested in your content. You know, if you're going to add anything, and the other thing is how your voice sounds. I was blessed that way with a reasonable voice for television. Um, so I started, and I started working with Pat. He was an ultimate pro, you know, he was a consummate pro. He always ready, always did his homework. Uh, we were always on time. And over the years, I said to him more than one occasion, this has got to be worth something extra to CBS. I'm not saying extra pay mm-hmm. to know that we're that reliable. We're their show. We're always there. We go to the meetings, you know, we take the notes and we get up early, up to the booth, and we're ready to go when they, when they ring the bell. And uh, Pat, <clears throat> not many people know Pat was a was a Florida State junior champion in tennis, mm. and uh, not many people knew that. And but at dinners he'd ask me a lot about tennis, and uh, of course he was a sports guy, and he and he he had almost a photographic memory, and and we just got along well, and we knew. We got to know phraseology, got to know when he was going to stop and I was going to go and I, he knew when I was going to stop and let him get back in. Part of the, you know, a game ends and he calls a score. I've got 30, 40 seconds to, to describe what went on kind of thing. Uh, and then I got to get out in time, let him reset to the one. Some people were doing a code to keep talking, it's time to reset, you don't get to do it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and we just, we, we liked one another, we had fun together. And uh, I always remember uh, we were at the open one year and they put a graphic up and they said that. Greg Norman, the ball coming off Greg Norman's driver was going at 140 miles an hour and left the club. And uh, Nolan Ryan's fastball was at 97, and the Union Pacific was was 110, and something else, something else. And and I I said, oh, Sampras' serve was 95, you know, kind of thing, whatever. And I said. When I was over, I said, the thing that struck me there was that, you know, Sanford hits you with a with a tennis ball on the server, it's not going to hurt me, but if Nolan Ryan hits you, mm. it's going to do some damage. And someone else said, so will the Union Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> That's all he said. We, you know, we got a good chuckle out of it. And uh, he, 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 was, he always knew what was going on. When you first get involved, the television ease is not easy. Mm-hmm. You know the language and you know, cues and fills and fonts and all you know all that kind of stuff. Winning play replays, etc. And and then they'd give us some guidance in our ear, and and I'd say, 
do you understand where to say, see, I'm like, we're okay. You know, so then I knew I was okay because he's not, he's going to take care of me in effect. Mm-hmm. You know, I got obviously where I understood it. Didn't have to, you know, have that kind of protection. Had a wonderful director, a guy named Bob Daly. We had many of them, but he did the majors. And, and he knew when I was fairly new in, in the television that our, our producer, Jerkinian would come in and give you some some discussion and some legalese or whatever, and then and then he'd get off and then Alex, let me know when you need, need to get in here, okay? All right. Yeah. And and then Bob Dale would click in my ear and he'd say, "Now here's what, here's what's going to happen." So he'd simplify it and sift it, you know, so that he he only told me what I needed to know, mm. which you know again just helping me. But I really enjoyed the television. It was a fun experience. Saw a lot of great tournaments, a lot of great players, a lot of good matches. We did that Super Saturday at New York in what, 84, 83, 84, when we started 11 in the morning, got off at 11 that night, went straight through. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of amazing experiences. And those night shows, you know, we started out, Pat and I did them almost ad-libbed them for 15 minutes but on the afternoons and he expanded to a half an hour and it became so successful that they made it World War III they had a whole new production group and everything else and, 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 and teleprompters everything which we didn't have you know <laughs> you would have liked to that huh? huh? you would have liked to have that <laughs> well it depends you know what yeah the longer the the deal is if you mm-hmm. you know um, I didn't need it when I'm Looking at, at, at some points in a match or something—that's that's, that's simple. But yeah. but there are times when the, when the teleprompter is, would, would have been nice. Yeah. 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 I think you've covered everything. But is there anything I, I missed that? Um, you're obviously busy now with I know grandkids and family's important to you still. As you're. Well, first, I mean, I, I was blessed that my family were supportive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure my dad spent some money that he really didn't have. I mean, we really made it tough. Mm-hmm. And my two older brothers, we were each about two years apart, uh, were never jealous. Uh, I mean, they said, you know, I hope you beat everybody in the world and make a bajillion dollars kind of thing. So that made it simpler for me. Mm-hmm. Could have been, you know, ugly. Uh, so I was really blessed. And I said, Bill Talbert. Uh, was was you know fabulous for me and, and my career, and um, last I got to speak at his funeral, uh, so we went through a lot together. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a diabetic. Um, I I I'm just trying to think quickly of their stuff. Uh, you know, I'm, now I'm, I'm. Well, first of all, I was I was inducted in the Hall of Fame in 1970, mm-hmm. and the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I was a vice president. And I was president for 12 years, which was an honor and interesting and fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, preserving the history of the sport is pretty darn important, I think. Uh, I wrote four books, none of which outsold the Bible. <laughs> so I'm not writing a fifth book. Um, 
you know, I've met like six presidents, been to the White House, uh, spent some time when I was in India with Prime Minister Nehru, uh, Clement Attlee after, you know, in 1950, first, in the 50s when I was in England. Uh, the people you meet, movie people, uh, politicians, uh, uh, best thing I've ever played in 55 countries. Wow. You know, so I mean, those are all fantastic experiences that, that you know, not many people get to enjoy. And most of it, so much of it is someone else's expense. Because mm -hmm. growing up, we couldn't afford that. And I mean, I would not have gotten to Europe in those days when I, when I did the first time if it weren't for Bill Talbert. Because uh, we just didn't have, have the money. My dad had gone through the Depression and repaid some money he owed through the depression he wouldn't go through bankruptcy and so we had to you know we didn't have a lot of loose chains sitting around always made sure we had a decent meal and uh, loving the family so and I and I have some still have friends from you know, people I met in 1944 you know starting high school kind of thing one of them drove down here from Chattanooga to, to just take me to lunch for my, my 83rd birthday. Ten hour drive and his wife drove down and turned around the next day and went back. And another one from Cincinnati just flew down uh, to spend a day with me. Got him one day and we dinner and left the next day. Uh, you know, those are things I cherish. And one of my maybe give me a line and put on my tombstone he said he, he's never forgotten from whence he came which which is makes me feel good and that that's what I try to do and not change you know not be anybody different and I you know I'm fortunate to accomplish what I accomplished but it's not unique a lot of people have done it but it was a it was a heck of a trip. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing so much. You're welcome. I appreciate it. Sure. I'm so thankful to have had the opportunity to spend this time with Tony. A big thanks to J. Wayne Richmond for setting up this interview. Tony's legacy will certainly live on. My thoughts are with the family that he dearly loved. Rest in peace. <laughs>